Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and today we are continuing our series, Why?, in which we're tackling your submitted questions. But unlike the last two weeks, we're going to be tackling this one with a panel, because I think today's questions kind of lends itself to having multiple perspectives. So I'm going to invite my panelists to introduce themselves. Good morning. My name is Elizabeth Ross. Happy to be here. Good morning. I'm Julie May McDougall. And I'm very nervous, but I'm happy. (laughs) It's okay. None of the questions of the Y series are actually that complicated. So Um, (laughs) that's not true because these wonderful ethers are going to help me explore three interconnected and quite complicated questions today. That is one, how should Christians balance our pursuit of justice and grace? Two, how do we handle the disappointment we feel when a Christian person of influence commits a harmful sin against others? And three, in such instances, can that person's work or art stand on its own? Or is it forever tainted by what they've done? Simple stuff, right? Super easy, yeah. And these questions are really three that arise from this increasingly common phenomenon in our culture over the past several decades, where the existence of mass media has led to this rise in these very public falls from grace when it comes to Christian leaders, theologians, and artists, which, to be clear, is not new in and of itself. Broken people have found their way into positions of influence and power for as long as there has been a human condition. Am I right? However, what is new is our ability to know about such events and to know a lot of details about such events, sometimes from across the world, right? This has changed dramatically in the last 50 years with technology, creating both positive and negative repercussions, including this struggle that I think many Christians have when it comes to people who've been positive influences on their lives that are then discovered to have hurt other people in either small or, quite frankly, horrifying ways. Two simultaneous truths that this person helped me and hurt others that combine to create a moral uncertainty concerning how to relate or how to think about their legacy, their careers, the impacts, their books, their art, their ideas moving forward, raising questions like how should we treat them? Can we still acknowledge that their work had a positive impact on us? Can we separate the art from the artist? All things that we are going to explore today. And to begin, let's start with the deeper worldview question that really guides this entire conversation. That is, as Christians called to both seek justice and humbly recognize our universal need for grace, how can we balance justice with grace when responding to such situations? Thanks. I think this is an important question, and it's it's a hard one for me. I think that justice and grace are these ideas, these things that we strive for, but we have to be careful. Mm. At least that's what I have learned. Um, especially when we're in a, feel, a place of feeling like we've been wronged or hurt. Um, because I know for me, I can lean on my own you know, desire for what justice looks like for me or for what grace looks like for me. And um, that can get tainted. So I think that sometimes justice or the idea of it can become unnecessarily punitive or vengeful. And I think um, grace can become a way to excuse harm or negate accountability. Um, And we don't want to do that. Ideally, I think that justice protects um, those who have been hurt or who are at risk. And Mm -hmm. I think that grace acknowledges 
the humanity in the leader and in all of us and then makes room for growth. So you're right. I, I think that the, the question is phrased very well because it is a balance and it can be a tricky thing to navigate. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really wise because I think what the first question we are to ask, really the key question is, what is the purpose of justice, right? And that seems like an obvious question to a lot of us as people have grown up with this conversation in America, but I think it actually is more complicated than you think because in America, I think we often hold a punitive vision of justice, kind of like you said, which is, what is the purpose of justice? Well, it's to punish the person who did wrong, to uh, make them hurt as much as the person that they hurt as much as possible, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is one vision of justice, but what I have found increasingly in the exploration of scripture is it's not the Bible's view of justice. The Bible's view of justice is a restorative or redemptive vision of justice, right? The goal of justice is not just to punish, but it is to heal. It is to actually redeem both victim and perpetrator, which is a very complicated business. And it is grounded in what you're saying, the image bearer status of people, the, the idea that all human beings have dignity before God, that we're all equal, that at the end of the day, we are not allowed to judge or seek retaliation because that is not our right. You know, I always think of Brian Stevenson, who's a lawyer, tries cases for death penalty, and he always had this, this statement that, that really gets at me about the death penalty. He always said, the question is not, does this person deserve to die, but rather, do I have the right to kill? And I think that's what we're talking about here, right? It's not necessarily about what does this person deserve? It's about how do we protect the victim? Do I have the right to destroy the perpetrator? And is there a path forward to heal both? And I think that's a powerful vision. So I don't know, Julie, maybe do you have any thoughts on that? I think that was both of you all. That was beautifully said. I, I, th I think it's also important to kind of think about how we, especially in Western culture, kind of come to this idea that we kind of have like a heroes and villains mentality mm. in our world, right? Where, you know, we like sorting people into good guys and bad guys. And, you know, we're almost always usually in the good guys camp, right? So, um, and that's just such an oversimplification because that's, that's not realistic. We all have the capacity to be agents of light in this world and to be agents of darkness in this world. Mm. I mean, that's First John 1 gets into that about how God is light and we can do, be dwelling with light in him, but yet if we have darkness in our hearts, then we're kind of deceiving ourselves, right? And the truth is not in us. And how acknowledging that we, are, we have this complexity, this duality, and, you know, Liz, you were saying, like, you know, when we have the heroes and villains mentality, we tend to kind of, uh, you know, maybe turn a blind eye to our heroes when they do something bad, they mess up or, or brush it under the rug, because we don't want to take them out of that hero's camp. We want to leave them there. We want to, they're our tribe, they're our people. Or we just say, that's it, you are now banished to villain world, and, <laughs> you know, you are, you know, un... You cannot get out of that. You are you know, pigeonholed into that. And it's just, I think, a really problematic oversimplification that we have this. And I think a lot of it just comes from that culture of story. Mm -hmm. And so having, being aware of that tendency, I think, can help us to have a more realistic and a more gracious way of seeing people who, who do fall and do hurt others. Because we also have that capacity, too. And yeah. if we don't recognize that, then we're really deceiving ourselves, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, that's, uh, 
there is a, I remember my first philosophy class, the teacher asked, and this is in college, and he was just like, 90% of Germans were Nazis. And he says, like, the fundamental human problem is that you think you were part of the 10% and so does everyone else. And he says, the hard truth is that nine out of 10 people in this room, if they grew up in the same circumstance, the same environment, the same worldview, the same story of culture, are gonna be the, the bad guys in the story. So what does that do? Well, it means that we need to be humble. We need to reflect that, like you said, we contain multitudes. We are all gray and it's not black and white, right? Um, I think last thing I wanna say is about the grace and the justice part of it before we move to that question, I think is that ultimately as Christians, we also should just remember like James says, at the end of the day, grace triumphs over judgment, right? That is our core belief as Christians of the cross and of you know, justification by faith and that none of us are worthy of grace and yet we've been given it freely. I think grace is always the first word on our lives, right? And it should always be our first word to others. However, I think Liz incredibly wisely pointed out that giving grace does not exclude protecting people from harm. Like giving grace could not lead us to let a victim be re-victimized over and over and over again, especially here in like a church community. So I think we should always be asking as long as we give grace, as well as giving grace, is the offender owning and seeking to correct their wrongs? Are they changing? Are they continuing to perpetuate the same behavior? And if so, are we stepping in to both disciple the perpetrator, but more importantly, protect the victim, right? I think those are the kind of the key questions because both are fundamental to our calling, right? Any more thoughts on that question before we move on? Cool. Well, the second question is equally important. My old sponsor used to remind me all the time, life is not an intellectual exercise. Uh, We don't just live in our heads. So let's recognize that having thoughts about the right, right, quote unquote, way to respond to such situations doesn't inherently change how they make us feel, especially in the moment. So in that vein, how do we navigate the complicated emotions or feelings of hurt, disappointment, disorientation, disillusionment, that arise when a Christian a person of influence falls? Um, for me, I have to make room for my feelings first. Mm. Um, I have to allow myself the time to feel the anger, the grief, the resentment. Um, but I can't stay there. Mm. And I will tell you, there's nothing more heartbreaking for me than to see people that I love carry around grief, resentment, pain for just ever, Um, especially when it comes to uh, a leadership role, having been harmed or hurt. And then uh, I think it hurts that person. Um, And and I hate to see that. So I think that a prominent theme throughout the Bible is reconciliation. Um, Aside from love, I think reconciliation is one of the, the themes of the Bible that I hold on to and try to you know, point myself in that direction. Um, So when I have been hurt by a leader, I have to remind myself that I'm not responsible for the harm that may have been caused to me, but I am responsible for the reconciliation of my own heart and mind. Mm. Um, And that reconciliation can look a lot of different ways. It doesn't always mean a direct interaction with another person. It can be. I've had reconciliations like that where there's been a leader that I know and I say like, Let's get lunch if I feel safe enough to get lunch. And then at that lunch, the reconciliation for me doesn't necessarily look like, can we revisit the ways that you have hurt me? And can you please give me explanations for all of these things? It can just be, hey, 
let's talk about life. How have you been? I, you know, we shared life together and that was important. There's other situations where I've needed a little more space and that's looked like a text that says, hey, I'm thinking about you. Again, only in situations where these are safe. There is a spiritual leader um, who has been in my life, no one associated with the E3 community that continued to do things that were hurtful to me and my family over and over and over again. And in that situation, I got to a point where I was like, I can't keep putting myself in situations where I'm getting hurt. This person is not trustworthy. Still, I don't want to carry that resentment. So their um, reconciliation has looked like um, praying, just praying for um, peace in my own heart, the ability to, to coexist. Um, so this can look a lot of different ways for me. It's looked like I gave some examples, but I think just some practical steps, maybe taking a step back um, from a leader or an environment to avoid further pain, allowing space for time um, and healing, uh, leaning into, not running away from those uncomfortable feelings because they don't go away, friends, um, and finding appropriate and safe people for support. Um, then finding ourselves when we can get to a more regulated and neutral state, turning towards reconciliation, whether that's facing the person or thing that has hurt us, trying to have a, a heart, an open heart and mind again without putting ourselves in a vulnerable position of getting hurt. And um, that can look like a lot of things, maybe going back to a place that you have avoided, somehow putting yourself in a, in a position to be able to exist some way with that disappointment and realize this doesn't have to have power over me, the goal of releasing that resentment. And it's definitely an ongoing process, something that's not linear for sure. Yeah. Can I ask a follow-up to that real quick, Liz? Yeah. Um, one of the things I think Jesus really wisely does is, you know, Matthew 18, he tells a parable of the unforgiving servant, which is all about like, in your heart, yeah. are you a forgiving person? Are you releasing resentment? Or are you taking poison and expecting someone else to die, right? Right. Um, but then in the same passage, he has talk on reconciliation and it's just incredibly practical. It has like no imagery. Yeah. He's just like, hey, person hurts you. You have to directly confront them, talk about what yeah. happened. If it gets worked out, you're good. If the behavior continues, you bring other people in until it's solved. And like, there are moments in which I think by the end of that, like you're not engaging with the person again as the victim. What role do other people play in that reconciliation process? Like does bringing other eyes and ears into maybe like a hurt like that help? Because I know for me, I've always struggled with like, once I resent someone, I have a very clouded perspective on both the person, but also how to proceed, right? So if you have any thoughts on that, I would just love to hear them. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things I mentioned was finding safe and appropriate people yeah. for support. And I think that when we are looking to people that we love and love us, um, sometimes you go to the person for support. My friend Mike gets hurt by somebody, and I'm upset that Mike is hurt, and now I'm defensive, and I'm <laughs> saying, you're right, they hurt you. That was really unfair. Stick it to them. Thank and you. I get defensive and protective over Mike. Um, so I think when we're looking for those safe and supportive people, it, it has to be very intentional. Like Mike, you mentioned a, a relationship with a sponsor. For me, I've had relationships with um, also sponsors, pastors, um, counseling, somebody that is going to be able to, to take off that instinct towards being defensive and protective, which those are good feelings, but also say, hey, we can't control this thing that happened to you and that has hurt you. But what we can control is like, I don't want to see you have to 
carry this pain mm. and what steps can we take? So I think it's something we have to be very intentional with the people that we let in. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Yeah. Julie May, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, you know, I think sometimes we think, oh, it makes me angry to see to that somebody could have you know, done this or have deceived me. There's sometimes there's this disappointment, but a lot of these feelings are really complex reactions to grief because mm. really what we're doing is we're grieving the loss of this person that we thought we knew or the person that we thought we, even whether they're from afar, you know, oh, that, they would never do that, you know. And so that, that's a loss. It's a loss also if they were a role, played a role in your, in your life, in your spiritual formation, in your, you know, like they were, you know, that mentor, even, again, that, that influence. And so grief looks different in different people, and it's complex, and it does, you know, have all these different feelings. It could be anger. It could be disappointment. It could be depression, you know, um, and denial. And processing through those are not fun, and they're not easy, but like lots of other types of um, experiences of grief, you know, we have to go through them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and how do we do that? I think Liz was made a great point, you know, finding somebody that you, that's a safe person to talk to, writing about it, creating your own art or creating your own expression, you know, pray, giving it over to, to God and, and praying for that person and for that situation. I mean, it does it and plus like plus time, all the things <laughs> plus time, you know, depending on that scenario. But also I think where you, where we hope we would land is some level of acceptance mm. of, a newly created understanding of who that person is, of who we are, and maybe even a little bit of understanding of our responsibility and what kind of unrealistic expectations we've put on them. Yeah, I think that's something, you know, that is very important to note. And I do not want this to, like, veer into a weird victim blaming because I think it can at times, but, like, you know, I'm someone who has been through, and I think all three of us have, where we went through a person of influence in my life. The man who actually led me to, back to faith did have a very public fall from grace and really blew up his life, and it was very complicated. He was my boss. He was my friend. He was my father figure. And blah, like, you know, it was a grief. because I was grieving. I'm not going to get to work with this person anymore, and I always envisioned my life for the next 10 years as, like, working with this person who I love, right, or all these dreams. But I think what was really interesting in that experience was the feeling of betrayal that I kept hearing from people. And that fascinated me because it was one of those things where it's like, I, I just wanted to ask, like, how did he betray you? He hurt people in his life. He hurt his loved ones. He hurt people very intimate to him, but he didn't do anything that tangibly hurt me or you or the person I was talking to. And that's complicated because I think what that revealed is this idolatry that often forms, especially in churches, but in the secular world too, that centers around charismatic leaders, right? Mm -hmm. People who get us on vision, who make us feel things, who lead us into a sense of purpose, right? And we need them. And in fact, I think what we need deep down is we need them to be better than us, to be almost like otherworldly in some way. Like I need this person to have some divine wisdom that I don't have so I can feel like I can follow them. It gives credence to me doing what they tell me to do. And also, I mean, I'll be honest, it lets me off the hook from having to do what they actually tell me to do because <laughs> it's like, well, he may pray every day, but I'm not a super spiritual person like him. Um, so I do think there's like this weird thing that goes on. 
And what happens is we put them on pedestals, right? We, we elevate them to imperfection, and then they fall off because, quite frankly, they're human, and they can't fulfill that idol role in our lives anymore, and then we resent them for their imperfection, right? We resent them for letting us down for not being God, and we hold them accountable because they're human, yeah. and we feel betrayed by their humanity. I think that's, that's interesting, right? That's, for me, like, this primary emotional and mental work that comes out of these moments. Like we must process the real pain created by someone who did something wrong. Mm -hmm. Someone who ruined their lives that we care about, maybe hurt other people, while also identifying that sometimes the complicated emotion we're feeling is that we put them on a pedestal and doom them to kind of fail in our own minds, right? So I don't know, it sounds like you have something you want to add to that. Well, when we were, you know, when I was kind of studying this and thinking about it, it really made me think of a passage in um, Hebrews, letter to the Hebrews, uh, which is such an encouraging letter. Like it's all about, hey, look at the past and all the things that have happened and you can do it and don't give up and, yeah. and all that. And, and it gets to this place where it says, you know, because, you know, we are, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. So let us throw off all the hinders and the sin that easily entangles and run this race that's marked out for us, right? And um, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and goes on, you know, who did this amazing thing, who endured the cross and is now here at the, the right hand of God. And what it made me think of is there was this like very, very short window of my life where I was, took up running, like very short, like mm. a few years. Yeah. Like no, thank you. A few years of my I whole had life. One of those phases yeah, it was a phase. Why it was are you great. attacking me? And <laughs> and we did a lot. I know I ran a lot of trails around Tallahassee. You know, and you know, there's you're in a trail race. There's a clear destination, and there's somebody that you know you are. I am not trying to follow that guy next to me or in front of me. I have to get to the end. That is mm. my race, right? And yet, you know, you might be running. You might notice this person kind of ahead of you, and like now they have a good stride, and they're not like. <laughs> like weirdly like <gasps> wheezing like I am. Maybe they've got something right. You know, maybe I should watch how they're doing it. Maybe I should do it like they're doing it, you know? And you kind of start saying, man, guys, that's a great runner. Like I, I really admire that, you know? And I, you kind of start following what they're doing and not where you really need to be going, right? But then the problem is what if they, what if like their shoe comes untied or they have to like find a bathroom spot and they just take a hard left off the trail? Do you... What do you, you don't follow them, right? I mean, you could, and then everyone, that'd be awkward. Oh, <laughs> hey, I thought we were, oh no, okay. You know, but it just reminds us, just this kind of idea that, that passage of we're, run, we're all running this race toward Jesus, right? And so we take these different little circuitous routes and some of them are really unpleasant detours. And it's not for us to find somebody else and run, try to run their race because we don't know where we're gonna end up. We gotta run our race and keep that, you know, we are followers of Jesus. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not followers of pastor so-and-so, not followers of pastor Mike, right? It, I, I am not your God, please, Sorry. Lord. And you are, you should be grateful. I am a, I have a horrible kingdom. <laughs> like, let me tell you. Um, that's very wise. And I also love that metaphor because like what happens when you start looking down and you start overthinking you're running? Have you ever ran and tried to look down? How quickly do you then fall, right? Um, I think that makes a ton of sense. So let's dive into our last question. And it's basically just given this whole conversation, how should we respond when someone's experienced such a fall? Should we continue consuming their ideas and their art? 
can their life's work stand on its own? Or again, as I mentioned earlier, is it forever tainted by what they've done? What do you think? Where do you land on that? I can go first on that one. I want to go back to something that you taught a couple weeks ago, which is just how individualized our spiritual journey is, that there are so few should and shouldn'ts that apply to everybody. Mm. You know, like, should we all still listen to this song, even though this person who created it did a terrible thing? Should we all, um, is you know, should we just stop recommending this book to everybody, even though it has incredible truths because of that person maybe renouncing or going in a different direction in their faith, you know? And I think the answer to that is, you know, it depends. Like, it's like, what is that to you? If it, I do believe that art can stand on its own many of the times, especially the less we know about the creator. I mean, it is, we are creative beings because we're made in the image of God and he's a creative being. So it's like we create these things and they just go on and live. I mean, think about the Psalms, you know, think about the, you know, amazing grace, like how many people and generations those words have inspired and touched way beyond the lifetime of that person who wrote it, who we don't know anything about. They might've done terrible things. We don't know, but you know, on the flip side, when we do know, and it and it it can ruin, it can make something pretty yucky. Mm-hmm. If we if it can change our thoughts about it, and then maybe just don't for you. Like, don't yeah. re- listen to that song. Don't read that book. You know, that's okay. But I think the balance is in giving you know the grace to 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 do what you need to do, but also respect what that person next to you needs. So maybe for them that book is still incredibly impactful and will lead them to the truth. And what is the actual work point to? Like what, it, like what is the merit of it? Is it point to the truth? Does it point to, um, or does it justify a really dark worldview? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, does it encourage and inspire people or should it be something that, that maybe in hindsight you can see these, some, some faulty you know, some false, some false things in it. I don't know, but I think just trying to, to, it's, it's a tough balance to be able to not, you know, again, like you said a couple weeks ago, do what, understand what you need and also look to your neighbor and, you know, help try not to make them stumble, mm-hmm. but also respect what, you know, what they need to do in their journey too. Yeah. Don't impose. Right. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. You have any thoughts, Liz? Yeah. Um, like, Julie May said, I acknowledge first that I think that this this certainly varies from person to person and from leader to leader or artist to artist. What we're able to consume or interact with and enjoy that is helpful um, and and what is, is harmful or putting us into an unhealthy place. Mm. Um, for me, yes. In most cases, or definitely in some cases, I've still been able to consume the teaching, artwork, music um, of um, artists or leaders who have impacted me, um, even if there's been some type of fall or disappointment or pain associated with it, when I've been healthy enough, again, having felt that pain and then hopefully done the work to reconcile that within me, then it reminds me that all people are fallible. Um, and, and at times it's even been kind of 
cathartic for me to to engage with that material again and say, oh, okay, this was a good thing in my life that I enjoyed about this person or this organization. And I'm still allowed to have that, um, I think. Um, I Again, it reminds me that people are fallible. And, and I can tell you for sure that I have done and said things in my lifetime that if any of you knew out of context, you might say, she has no business being on that stage right. telling other people her thoughts or you know, ideas. Um, but if we were able to sit down over a cup of coffee and I could say, hey, here's what was going on in my life when this thing happened, when I did that, when I said that. Here's how I have grown. Here is how I have learned from that experience. And um, hopefully you might be able to acknowledge the humanity in me and, and I want to afford that to other people. I know that I would hate to be remembered for the worst thing that I've ever done. Mm. And in good conscience, again, with the assumption that somebody's not continuing to cause harm. In good conscience, I, I don't want to do that to somebody else. Yeah, amen. That's great. Yeah, this is something I've wrestled with a lot. I mean, a lot of you know I have a movie podcast with one of my best friends, and um, this obviously comes up all the time in movies. I mean, this is just a reoccurring theme. Can I watch movies from X person who is not a good human being, right? And I think I've landed on, on yes in most scenarios. I think we can separate art from the artist for the reason Jerry said. I mean, one, every artist is a human being, which means they're flawed. So, like, um, <laughs> the person you think is perfect as an artist, so thus you can listen to their stuff, is probably not. And when you find out the truth of their lives, maybe you'll stop listening to theirs because that's kind of how that thinking would work, right? Um, I think there's also kind of like what you said. I mean, or maybe you hinted at, Julie May, which is like, I do think once art leaves the artist and goes into a public sphere, it doesn't belong to them anymore. It's become its own thing. It becomes about how I interact with it, how I feel engaging with it. Um, their intent almost goes out the window, not to get too postmodern, but like there is, it becomes more about my relationship and the meaning it brings to my life than who the person was. But I think the only th a new thing I would add is that I think the reason I've landed on this is that I have found how quickly I veer into hypocrisy when I start playing that game. Uh, when I start basically drawing these arbitrary hard lines on what I can and can't consume based on the judged morality of a person. Because what I have found for myself is that I end up with some really stupid divisions on that, right? I'll stop watching this movie because of what this person has done, but I'll keep buying products from Amazon, which has done more harm in the world, maybe, than that person ever will, right? I'll still consume movies from the corporation that is Miramax, for example, led by Harvey Weinstein. He did worse than half the singular directors who I'm judging. Am I going to take it all the way down to the person running the lights? It's like, oh, yeah, the director didn't do anything wrong, but that guy who did the lighting for that movie, real sinner. Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, basically what I'm inherently going to do is I'm going to draw hard lines based on what are convenient to me, what are non-convicting to me, uh, what lets me feel superior over this one person while I go upon being blind to the ways in which I am complicit in the world's wrongs or consuming art that, quite frankly, I just like more and I don't want to say goodbye to in my life, right? And that's, that whataboutism always ends in hypocrisy. We do not judge fairly, which is primarily why Jesus tells us not to do it. Um, so I just think that's where I land, which, again, does not mean, and both of you said this, does not mean we cannot choose to not engage with it anymore. 
Um, that's definitely okay if that's what's best for you. Just make that decision on how you respond to it or feel about that work, not based on virtue signaling or some simplified arbitrary standard of morality. And don't assume others need that standard too, right? Um, I don't watch Kevin Spacey movies anymore. That's just because he gives me the creeps when I watch it. And I don't enjoy the experience, so I choose not to. Um, but you guys may love watching Seven because you're like, he's not even acting in that movie. Um, <laughs> it's a movie joke for anyone who's seen it. But that's where we land, right? And that's, that's okay. So I think that, that's it. I think that's all the time we have. So if you all could give them a round of applause. And as a reminder with this series, we are not here to give you the answers so you can check off the box of these questions and never think about them again. Go into your growth groups, go into your communities, go into your own private devotional time and wrestle with these hard, complicated questions so you can work out for yourself how you need to be directed as you seek Jesus and run the race that you've been given. Amen? Amen. That's it for us today. Next Sunday is Baptism Sunday, the best day ever. Woo! Woo! So please come back then. Um, I'll pray us out and we can get to the rest of our days. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for breath. We thank you for another opportunity to experience your world and to talk about your truths and to just seek you in the complicated moments of our lives. Help us be humble, open-minded, and willing to change where we need to be changed. Help us repent from where we need to repent and help us move forward as renewed humans into a world that desperately needs more light in the darkness. We love you. We thank you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Have a great Sunday, y'all.